Open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter two. Nehemiah chapter two. If uh, you're using one of our Bibles, that's page 330. Nehemiah chapter two. And uh, the, the passage will be up on the screen here in a few minutes as well. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have your phone on you. Um, are, are you guys doing well this morning? How's everybody? Everybody doing good? You, you, you've, you fought through the monsoon. You are the real Christians. You showed up on a day like today. Congratulations, you are more righteous than, uh, just kidding, just kidding. Um, great, great to be together this morning, so glad you're here. My name's Dave, if you're new to Ethos, welcome. Um, so glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you'll hear us say this a lot, whether you're a lifelong follower of Jesus or you are here and you're just exploring faith, questions of faith, questions of life, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, you are, you are welcome to be here exactly as you are because we all understand that we all need Jesus to kind of move us uh, together and to stretch us together and to grow us together. And so whatever your story is, so glad that you're here. Um, we are literally right in the middle of a month-long journey of prayer and fasting. You've probably heard us talk about it all morning. Where as, as a church, for the last 15 days, we've been praying together every morning. You can go online, you can download uh, the prayer guide, but we've been praying together every day uh, quite simply just for awakening, that, that God would bring about revival uh, in, in the city. And we've been asking for this revival, that God would awaken the church so that he can use the church to radically love and bless and serve the city that he has placed us in, that he's called us to. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but we're convinced that Nashville does not need another church. Nashville needs a church that's awake, that's awake uh, to the voice of God and the will of God and the desires of God. And so, all month long, we've been praying for that. We've seen God do some amazing things. Last week, we prayed for the Eagles to win, and they did. Prayer is answered. Victory. Uh, some of you have been wondering what happens to prayer. They're answered. Don't you see the, faith, the faithfulness of God? Um, but it's been fun. We've been praying all month just for God to do things. And, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but we're here in the halfway point of, of this journey. And so often, just kind of the honeymoon of anything new just begins to wear off. It's like, you know, like day one of this, like our church is like, yes, let's pray and fast and ask for revival. Day three, we're like, how many days is this again? You know, week two, it's like, I don't even know if we're Christians anymore. We're so discouraged and it's so hard. And, you, and I don't know if you feel that, you know, there are these moments where Sydney and I in this journey where we've, we've been praying and man, our home just feels like the presence of God's glory. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And then three days later, it just feels like a tornado of chaos with our three kids. We're trying to pray together and it, it's just hard sometimes. And this morning, as we kind of come to this halfway point in the journey, I want us to really think together about why is it like, why is it so hard to do the things that matter so much? Like, like, why is it so hard to do the things that matter so much? Like, how come we don't have to put together a 30-day journey to watch more Netflix? Like, we don't need discipline there. I've never written a prayer guide, like, to get you addicted to Stranger Things. Like, you don't need help doing that. But, like, when it comes to seeking the face of God, like, like why is it so hard? Why, why, why is it hard? I believe there's a reason, because I believe... With every opportunity that heaven puts in front of you, hell is ready to oppose it. Like with every heavenly opportunity, hell is ready to oppose it. There's this, this proverb, it's not out of the Bible, it's just kind of this old wise saying that I love, that says you can count the seeds inside of an apple, but you can never count all of the apples inside of every seed. In other words, like if you cut an apple in half, you could count all of the seeds that are right there in the core of that apple, but if you were to plant those seeds 
and they were to grow trees, and those trees would bear fruit, and then those fruit tree, uh, th- that fruit would fall to the ground and would start more trees. Like You can count the seeds that are in an apple, but you can never count all of the apples that will come from a single seed. And I was thinking about that this, this week as we've been in this journey of awakening, where we're like, God, hey, stir something up in us, Lord. Like, awaken something in us, because I'm convinced that so often in the kingdom of God, we have this ability to count the small seeds of awakening. You can remember that moment that you became a follower of Jesus. You remember that moment you took a step of faith where you leaned into that new ministry where you began to to engage your coworkers differently or think about your neighborhood differently or treat your spouse differently. You can all begin to account and remember some of the small moments of awakening, but I'm convinced that none of us have the ability to count and quantify all of the awakenings that God wants to bring from those small seeds in your life. And you have no idea what it is that God's stirring up in this month as you're beginning to pray, as you're beginning to seek God for your family, for your neighborhood, for the city. Sometimes it feels like a little seed. And God says, I'm wanting to bring an orchard where all you can see is a seed. We have no idea what God wants to do. One of my favorite stories is a story of a guy named Edward Kimball. He lived in Detroit in the mid-1800s. Chances are you've never heard of this guy. He became a follower of Jesus, and he was just convicted that he wanted to, to do something, to, to give something back, you know, for the Lord. And so he didn't know what to do, so he started volunteer uh, teaching. He was teaching the middle school boy Sunday, uh, Sunday class at the church that he went to there in Detroit. And for the most part, it was a pretty good experience, but there was this one kid in his class that was just kind of a punk that had no interest in what was going on, it was kind of a disruption to all of the other kids. And so Edward Kimball, he just found himself just like praying, like, God, would you do something in this student's life? And just felt like he'd get no breakthrough. So one day uh, he was on his lunch break uh, there in downtown Detroit and Edward just sensed this awakening from the Holy Spirit to use his lunch break to go down to the shoe store where this kid was uh, working. This was before child labor law, so you could work when you're like six years old, you know, and this kid had a job in 1800s now. So he goes down to the shoe store and he just decides, hey, I don't even need a pair of shoes, but I'm gonna buy a pair of shoes just so I'll have a captive audience and I'm gonna make that kid from my class listen to how much God loves him. And so he walks down to his shoe store and he starts trying on like 100 pairs of shoes and finally he buys a pair. And as he's sitting there with this young kid that's in his Sunday school class that never paid attention, he just keeps sharing with him, hey man, do you know how much God loves you? Do you realize like I I left my lunch break, I'm buying this pair of shoes I don't even need because God loves you. And I love the way the story unfolds. He says, it was in this moment, I wasn't sharing any new information with him. It's just that God did something new in his heart and all of a sudden, just the love of God began to fill that little shoe store. And this young guy wanted to become a follower of Jesus. His name was Dwight Moody or D.L. Moody. Maybe you've heard his name. He went on to be an evangelist that saw 100 million people come to faith in his lifetime. Small seeds, small awakenings. Edward Kimball, this like business guy, being awakened in this season of prayer and fasting, walking down to a shoe store, telling a kid how much God loves him, had no idea what God was gonna do. And if the story ended there, it'd be amazing, but it doesn't. D.L. Moody goes on and he starts discipling people. He meets this guy named Billy Sunday, who at the time was a professional baseball player. Didn't love God, didn't know God. He begins sharing his faith and God just begins to awaken something between D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday. God starts stirring this thing in him and all of a sudden, uh, Billy Sunday becomes this amazing evangelist, one of the most significant evangelists in America in the early 1900s. And if the story stopped there, it'd be amazing, but it keeps going. Billy Sunday would disciple this guy named Mordecai Ham. How's that? Like, I don't know what it is about old time, like a long time ago. All the names are terrible, but his, his name was Mordecai Ham. And he disciples this guy. Once, once again, you've never heard of this guy. But he lived in North Carolina, and he, he started sharing his faith with people around. He decided he wanted to hold this little revival meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina, and these high school kids from the area wanted to shut it down. 
because he was preaching against so many of the things that were bringing them a lot of joy. And so one day in particular, these high school students decided they were going to kind of rally a group of students to come shut down this revival that was being led by Mordecai Ham. One of the students that they got to come with them was a guy named Billy Frank, who you probably know as Billy Graham. And he showed up that night to just see what was gonna happen and he ended up just experiencing the love and the awakening of God in his heart. And you know the way the story goes. God uses him to share the gospel with 2.2 billion people. A hundred years before, when Edward Kimball was sitting in your seats asking God to wake him up, he had no idea where the journey was gonna go. And the seed of his life is incalculable. You can't count it. And I don't know about you so often when we talk about revival and we talk about this awakening, like we think of the Billy Graham moments, we're like, God, like, like do something amazing. But the truth is, I don't feel like Billy Graham. You don't look like Billy Graham. None of us think we're Billy Graham. But what if God is just looking to raise up a few Edward Kimballs? Like what if God is just looking to awaken a few women, a few men who say, you know what, on my lunch break, I can buy a pair of shoes I don't need to share the love of Jesus with somebody who desperately needs to hear the love of God. See, this is what I love, is awakening always starts small and it only seems big because of the one with whom holds the awakening in the first place. And God takes the seeds of our obedience. He takes the seeds of these little steps. God is stirring up things in us. I hear husbands going, man, we're praying for the first time. Wives saying, hey, we're in the word for the first time. College students saying, hey, we're chasing after purity for the first time. And it feels like a seed. But God wants to turn it into an orchard. But the reason it feels so hard is because everywhere there's an opportunity from heaven. The opposition of hell will be there because hell knows what's on the line when guys like Edward Kimball wake up. See, I love the story of Nehemiah. It's what we've been praying through the last few weeks. You know, this guy just minding his own business. He's there in the palace doing his job. And God begins to stir his heart for the plight of his culture. The walls of the city around the town that his ancestors were from had been destroyed and laying in ruins for 140 years. And God begins to awaken this thing in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah goes before the king. It's what we looked at last week in Nehemiah chapter two. He'd been kindling this fire of awakening in his life and he stands before the king. He says, hey king, would you give me permission to rebuild the culture that you yourself helped crush? Would you give me permission to be a part of reviving or awakening the culture that you are over? And by the grace and the power of God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the king releases Nehemiah to step into it. But here's what I want us to see this morning is that with every opportunity from heaven comes the opposition of hell, and all of a sudden, Nehemiah is gonna to begin to experience that so many of you are experiencing right now and what you'll experience in the days and weeks to come. Look at this, Nehemiah chapter two. We're gonna start in verse 11 this morning. It's gonna be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Are you guys awake? You here? You doing okay? All right, verse 11. He had just come out of the presence of the king. He says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And so there's this moment where Nehemiah has been awakened. He has been stirring this awakening in the presence of God for nearly four months. He stands in the presence of the king and he says, hey man, here's what God's put in my heart. Would you let me do it? But there's this moment where all of a sudden he has to step all the way into what God has been stirring up in him. And I love the way that verse 11 starts. It says, I went to Jerusalem. That was a 25-day journey. 25 days on horse. 25 days. I mean, think about how crazy this is. And he shows up and he begins to see firsthand that which God had been stirring up in his heart. He sees the condition of the city. He sees the condition of the culture that he's in. It keeps going like this. Jump down to verse 16. 
It says, the officials who were there did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. But then there's a moment where I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God that was on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And so there's this moment where Nehemiah steps into what God has been burning and boiling up in his heart. He begins to call community together to help him do this. And there's all these things that we could speak into this morning. We could talk about the power of community to bring about revival. We could talk about the power of persevering to bring about revival. But this morning, I want us to notice the significance of opposition when it comes in the context of revival. Look at verse 19, keeps going. But as we began to do this, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this. These were the warlords of the region around Jerusalem. They mocked and ridiculed us. And they said, what is this that you are doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? So here's where I want us to kind of dive in together this morning. I want you to notice this, that anytime heaven opens an opportunity, hell is quick to bring the opposition. Because the forces of hell have a vested interest in you staying exactly where you are in your brokenness. The forces of hell have a vested interest in making sure the, the walls of your life remain in ruins, uh, remain broken down. The, the, the powers of hell have this vested interest in making sure that your marriage never pushes into this place of spiritual intimacy, of making sure that your walk with Jesus never moves beyond cultural Christianity. The, the powers of hell want to keep you exactly where you are. And so there's this moment where awakening will always move us beyond the comfort of the palace, where we have to step into the thing that God has called us to do. And the moment you step into heavenly opportunity, hell is there with opposition. God starts this thing up in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah's like, man, I wanna be about that. He begins to lean into it, and all of a sudden, these forces are gonna come, and opposition's gonna take so many different shapes and sizes and forms. Look back at verse 19, I want you to see this. It says, they began to mock us and ridicule us. And they said, what is this that you're doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? I think one of the ways that, that the oppression or the opposition of hell so often comes knocking on our door when we take steps of Jesus is it comes in the form of social oppression. I love this. They, they say, hey, listen, Nehemiah, we're cool with this idea of you having your faith in the palace. We're cool with you worshiping Jesus in the palace. But man, the moment your faith leaves the palace and comes to the place of ruin and wants to do something in the culture, we're no longer cool with it. Like this is the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. We live in a culture, everybody is okay with you having your faith in Jesus. As long as your faith in Jesus doesn't infringe upon anything in the culture. As long as your faith is privatized and hidden and safe, nobody cares. But the moment Jesus' awakening in you calls you to do something that will begin touching the culture. See, the warlords of the region here in Nehemiah's day were like, hey, if you rebuild the walls, then we no longer have access to the things that we want access to. They had a vested interest in the people of God keeping their faith in the private places. Think about this in our church last year. There's one of my friends, his name's Ben. And, and, and Ben is just this passionate follower of Jesus. And he began to discover last year about this time that the company that he worked for, at their very best, they were doing some things that were unethical. At their very worst, they were doing some things that were just downright criminal. 
And so he started talking to some of his coworkers saying, hey, what are we gonna do about this? How are we gonna get this in line? And then they said, hey, get in line. Are you trying to rebel against the king or the boss? They said, keep your mouth shut. You're gonna mess this up for everybody. Like, uh, like the, the, the reports are good right now. Money's coming in. Keep your mouth shut. Get in line. But he couldn't do it. God just kept awakening something in him. He thought, man, I don't want to make a profit at the expense of my integrity. So he went and he spoke to the boss. And as you'd expect, the boss fired him on the spot. And there's this moment where he was experiencing the weight of social oppression. There are times when God stirs something up in us and all of a sudden we take that step. You know, Ben, I remember being in here praying, going, man, I'm gonna take this step with God. I'm gonna move into this thing with God and how's it gonna turn out? We're like, we don't know, but your first response is the honor of the Lord. And the oppression that sometimes comes in the social context we're in. In chapter three, they're gonna start building the wall and Nehemiah's gonna name everybody that's helping. But in chapter four, they're gonna start ex experiencing opposition once again. I want you to see this, look down at verse two of chapter four. It says, in the presence of Tobiah's associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox cl climbing up on it would break it down, these walls of stones. Now, I don't know about you. Like, I read that, that whole, that, that dig about the fox. That doesn't really burn me. Maybe that was a good Old Testament burn. Like, if you really wanted to get somebody 500 years before the days of Jesus, bring a fox into your cut down, you know? But there's this moment where the oppression, the opposition's coming against them. It, it starts out in this place of social, like, hey, get in line. Get in line, the culture doesn't want you to be awakened. And then it becomes this moment of psychological opposition. What does it say? Who are you, you, you feeble Jews? Who are you, you feeble leaders? Who, who are you? Like, are you capable of restoring? I go, have you ever stepped into something with God and then all of the psychological stuff began to stir up? You step into that moment, you just begin hearing the voices like, who are you? Who are you with your background? Who are you with your baggage? Who are you with the little that you know about the Bible? Who are you with your gender? Who are you with your race? Who are you with your family story? Who are you with your socioeconomic background? Who are you? And this is the way that the forces of hell so often come against the opportunities of heaven. They just start with a simple question. Who are you? Who are you? Nehemiah's like, I'm a son of God. I've been awakened by God. Who are you, Ethos Church? You're the children of God. That's who you are. That's who you are. But hell knows that when heaven opens an opportunity, sometimes all it takes is just a little bit of psychological opposition. It starts in this place of cultural pressure, stay in your place, and it moves to psychological opposition. Hey, who are you? And then it turns into this moment of physical rage. Look at verse seven. It says, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and the gaps were being closed, they were angry, and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up those with trouble against it. Jump down to verse 11. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we will kill them and we will put an end to this work. Have you ever noticed that so often, whenever you step into the opportunity of heaven, the opposition of hell, it, it comes at you, but over time it just keeps ramping up and getting more serious. Starts with social opposition. It turns into this psychological moment. All of a sudden, there's this physical opposition to Nehemiah and the group. 
Let's just call it what it is. In the United States, this is tough for us to get our minds around. I remember a couple years ago, Sydney and I, our family were in Portugal, and we were working with a group of church planters there, and we were staying with this just amazing woman, follower of Jesus. She'd been walking with Jesus for about 30 years, and we started noticing every day she would get up and she'd walk around her small little backyard there in Lisbon, Portugal. And it just kind of struck our attention because it'd be raining, and she'd be out there with an umbrella walking around, or it'd be cold, she'd be out there walking around. And so one day, Sydney just asked her, she said, how come you get out here and walk around the yard every day? And she told this story of 30 years earlier where she gave her life to Jesus. She got baptized at church. She came home and told her husband, and he beat her nearly to death. And he said, I don't ever want to see you pray in our house again. And she said, he can keep me from praying in the house, but he can't keep me from praying in the yard. And for 30 years, morning, noon, and night, just walking around the yard. And remember, we were just watching this woman walk, laps, praying for the husband that had pushed her in the yard. Just going, man, God, this is what happens sometimes. You step into the opportunity of heaven. And the oppression of hell comes against you. Nehemiah knew he had been awakened. God had said, hey, listen, I don't want you to just walk with me. He said, I want you to rebuild a generation. I want you to rebuild the walls. And so all of a sudden, Nehemiah begins to step into the opportunity. And what's there right behind him? I think this is the thing that we have to, to realize. I think sometimes our perspective on opposition is not a godly perspective. So often we believe that opposition is the evidence that we're headed in the wrong direction. I remember one time being in another country and I'm driving down the street and this car is coming right at me and they're literally hanging out the window waving, honking, and they're coming right at me, opposing me because I was literally driving down the wrong side of the street. And there's moments like that where you're going in the wrong way and you experience natural opposition. But in the kingdom of heaven, so often opposition is the evidence that you're headed in the right direction. And so often when you begin to experience resistance, the reason it's tough to pray for 30 straight days is because praying for 30 straight days will unlock your heart in the kingdom of God. Because everything that good, everything that's good takes just a little bit of work. You know, maybe the reason hell has come knocking on your door over the last two weeks is because for the first time in a long time, you've been dwelling in the house of the Father again. And sometimes when you're right where you're supposed to be, hell comes after you. This is what Jesus says in John 16, verse 33. Remember this? He says, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. In this world, you're gonna have hardship. In this world, you're gonna have opposition. But what? Take heart. Come on, Corey, shout me out. What? What? Yeah, take heart. Take heart. Jesus says, you can expect opposition. You don't have to fear it. Because when you're walking with Jesus into the things that God has called you into, there will be opposition. So I love this moment. Nehemiah, he stepped in. And the spirit-filled life has not gone as easy as he expected it to go. Jump down to verse 14 with me. I love this. He says, after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is kind of his brave heart moment. Like he sees the condition of his culture. He experiences the opposition of what they're stepping into. And he goes, hey, maybe I'm exactly in the place that God wants me to be in. And so I love this moment, Nehemiah stands up because there's always this moment where some man, some woman, some child just has to stand up for the culture they're in. And he stands up and he looks at the people and he says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because the Lord, who is strong and awesome and mighty, is here with you. I love this rallying cry of Nehemiah. He says, listen, your strength, your confidence is not in your own abilities, he says, your confidence, your strength is in the one, is in the God who's like here with you. I think about my three boys. They do this thing literally every night where they take their shirts off and they stand in front of the mirror and they kiss their muscles. I promise you, 
They did not get this from me. They got it from their mother, okay? So they'll stand there and they'll kiss their muscles and literally my oldest son will go, thunder, lightning, thunder, lightning. Like, and I'm like, man, he's gonna have such a rude awakening when he sees somebody that legitimately has muscles. You know, like, you know, right now, all of their confidence, their strength is in themselves. But there's gonna be this moment where they come to the end of that. And they're gonna have to ask, hey, where's the strength? I love this, Nehemiah says, hey, what God has called you into will require more than what you have. What God has called you into will require more strength than what you have. He says, so don't look in the mirror and kiss your mouth. He says, remember the Lord who's awesome and mighty, who's with you. Remember the Lord. Listen, and fight for your families. Do you know that everything that matters is worth fighting for? And sometimes you just have to fight for the things that matter. I think about one of my good friends a few years ago, found out that his wife was cheating on him, was getting ready to leave him and his kids. And there's this moment where he's just so broken down. He's like, I just want, he's like, I just want out. And I remember just telling him, hey, it's okay to fight. It's okay to fight for what matters. And not with your fist, but to get on your knees and to say, God, I am incapable of rebuilding the walls of this thing that's been laying in shambles. I love the way they fight in Nehemiah. They start on their knees. They say, God, come on, God, you gotta do this. So we're doing all month. They're saying, hey, God, what you wanna do in the city of Nashville is beyond us. You've gotta do this. But there's this moment where they get off of their knees and all of a sudden they start using their hands. They step into what God has called them for. There's some moment where, where their prayers led them to this place of action and brick by brick, stone by stone, they started rebuilding the walls around the city that God had sent them to. And here's what I love is this one awakening, this apple seed of faith in Nehemiah's life would open up this cosmic trickle effect of God's glory for generations to come. It felt like a small awakening in the palace, but God is gonna use them to rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah and his friends were able to rebuild in 52 days that which had been laying in ruins for 140 years. I mean, there's some of you, your family trees are a mess. Your life is a mess. The challenges in front of you are a mess and all you can see are 140 years of rubble, of ruin, of broken promises. One person awakened in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit can accomplish in 52 days what no one even dared to touch in 140 years. And I go, what is God stirring in you this season? What's God bubbling up in you? And may you not expect that as you lean into that heavenly opportunity, that it will be free of opposition. May the opposition of hell be the affirmation you need to keep yourself rooted in the presence of God in that place of prayer. And then when the time comes to stand up and to put brick by brick by brick by brick in place, trusting that sometimes God isn't just looking for a Billy Graham. He's looking for an Edward Kimball. He's looking for somebody on their lunch break. He's looking for somebody like in the hours after their small kids go to bed. He's looking for a college student that's trying to decide whether or not Christianity really is as good and real as they've heard it is. He's looking for that one business owner. He's looking for that one drug addict. Man, by the grace of Jesus, there are some of you that are so locked in oppression. I'm telling you, God is gonna rebuild your life this month and he's gonna raise you up to rebuild others. It's gonna happen. Small seeds of awakening lead to giant movements of awakening, not because you are you, but because God is God. And whenever those seeds are in his hand, whenever Jesus is at work, he does immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine or even begin to dream. 
Nehemiah had no idea that he was rebuilding not just the walls for his generation, but he was rebuilding the city where Jesus Christ would come and be known as Messiah 500 years later. He was rebuilding the very city where Jesus will return one day as we see him face to face at the second returning. Nehemiah thought he was just being stirred up for his generation. God says, you are, but there's so much more. And I go, isn't isn't it amazing that most of God's greatest work through you will probably happen long after you're dead? (laughs) That way only God will get the credit. I go, can you see it? Are you beginning to, to sense it? I go, that's why hell is bringing the opposition. So here we are at day 15, and I go, man, are, are we gonna give up? No, I'm not giving up. You can give up. I'm gonna be here next week. I'm going. We're going for this. And I go, let's ask God to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So I wanna put three questions on the screen that we're gonna talk about and pray through in the context of communion. Cole, you can go ahead and put those up for me. I just wanna give you the space here in just a few minutes to wrestle with these questions. One, where are you experiencing opportunity? Where's heaven beginning to open up your eyes, your vision, your heart? Where where are you sensing that God is calling you into something? For some of you, maybe you haven't sensed the opportunity yet, and that's the place you need to just stay and keep praying this morning. Second question is, where are you experiencing opposition? Where are you experiencing the resistance of hell as you try to step into this thing that God is stirring up? And you remember this time last year as we were praying and fasting, there was this family in our church and about halfway through, uh, the husband came up and he said, hey, Dave, I've been married for almost 20 years and I've never one time read the Bible and prayed out loud with my wife in our home. And he says, I'm embarrassed about that. He says, my goal by the end of these 30 days is to read the Bible out loud with her and to pray one time. And some of you are going, man, that is a small seed. That's what some of you are thinking right now. I go, listen, there's no such thing as a small seed in the hands of a big God. Amen. It's been amazing what God has done this year that all started in that one family as they begin to pray. I think about another young woman in our church, single lady, just felt this longing of God to move into an under-resourced neighborhood that so many people probably wouldn't even consider very safe for her. She just moved in because God was stirring her up to leave the comforts of her palace last year during this time. And over the last 12 months, man, God has done immeasurably more than she could ask or imagine in that neighborhood. And right now, God's turned that. Where are you seeing opportunity? Where are you feeling the opposition? And then last but not least, where do you need God to fight for you? You know, Nehemiah in verse 20 of chapter four, I love what he says. You don't have to look there, I'll just quote it for you. He says, when I sound this horn, you guys show up here because God's gonna fight for us. Nehemiah had this understanding that God was the one that did all the real fighting. We have the perspective of knowing that when Jesus died on the cross, the last words he uttered was, it's finished. In other words, not sitting here hoping that God can finish the battle. Jesus says, the battle's already finished. You're fighting from a place of victory. Let's lean into that. Let's lean into that into this time of prayer. And so let me pray over you, then I'm gonna send you to, to the bar and to the tables to get the bread, to get the cup, to come back and to circle up your chairs, to get in groups, and to be reminded that this bread that we hold in this cup that we drink of is this reminder that the battle has already been won and these things that Jesus is awakening in you, although God himself will be the one that will fight the battle, he's gonna ask you to fight with him. He's gonna ask you to step all the way in. So I invite you, let's just pray together and then I'll send us to communion and we'll come back and spend some time in prayer and discussion. God, I love you. And I just thank you for these men and women. I thank you for what it is that you're stirring up in our church. God, I pray that in this season, you would raise up an army, an army of Edward Kimballs. That God, you would awaken us in all the small day-to-day things and that you would use those small awakenings, God, in ways that we could never count or measure. God, I pray that you'd bring about your life and your glory and your joy in the city of Nashville. I pray that you would raise dead people to life. 
That God, you'd save those that are far from you, that you'd heal the sick, that you would break off the chains of addiction and oppression, and that God, you would use our church to be a part of that awakening. But God, would you start by awakening us? God, as we take the bread, as we take the cup this morning, as we pray together, as we reflect on these questions, would you give us a level of transparency and vulnerability? But more than anything, God, would your presence meet us in this space? In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.